Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, hello. This is Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. We have two extremely special shows for you this week um, on the occasion of the Chicago Architecture Biennial. Um, there's lots of really cool cats in town. Um, we'll be getting a, a plenty of them on the show. Um, this episode uh, that you're hearing now uh, kicks off with Karen Narevsky, who's going to tell us about an article that she recently published in Jacobin about NIMBYs and YIMBYs. Um, if you don't know what those words are, stay tuned. Um, then we'll be joined by Kate Wagner of McMansion Hell fame. And then lastly, this show, um, we'll be doing our mailbag segment, uh, where we answer your listener questions about architecture. Um, then uh, Saturday, you can tune in at 2 o'clock, and we'll have some more uh, Chicago Architecture Biennial programming. We'll be talking with the Architecture Lobby about what architectural activism has in store um, in the coming year. And then uh, we'll be chatting with Nick Cordy and Joanna Kloppenberg, and we'll be really interrogating the sort of biennial at that moment, talking about um, how it's complicit in some sort of dirty politics and money, um, and also what opportunities there are for architects to kind of... Um, um, maybe take advantage of it or push it in a positive direction. So this is, it's going to be a, a, an awesome two shows. And um, just to get it right out there, a big shout out to our super producer, Jamie Trecker, who, um, you know, has been with me with me all along, sort of managing the logistics of, of these specials. It's been a, a, a huge effort and a huge lift. And um, we're going to have some fun. So uh, without further ado, um, we'll, we'll start chatting with Karen. Karen, can you hear us? I can hear you. Awesome. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Uh, thank, thanks for coming on Buildings on Air. So happy uh, to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. Great. Yeah, so um, I've followed your writing on housing issues in Jacobin for a while, um, and I'm curious just to hear about how you got involved in thinking about housing and sort of how you approach questions of housing in the city, um, both in your writing, and, and I know you do some some uh, activism and organizing around this issue, so curious to hear about that, too. Yeah, so uh, I live and work in Somerville, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Boston, and it's a city that's experiencing a lot of the gentrification pressures that you see in big cities like Boston, New York, San Francisco, um, but it's a smaller scale. Um, so a lot of my day-to-day uh, -day work is spent trying to figure out how to deal with um, housing pressures, gentrification pressures in general, um, and uh, I started thinking about it as I got more involved with Jacobin and realized how much the process of gentrification is connected um, to the uh, processes of capital as a whole, uh, connected to land value and things like that, and also seeing how, um, you know, having family members who have lived in public housing and seeing what a stable resource that is recognizing that even though public housing is an important way to provide stability and shelter to people, our government doesn't invest in that. Right. So it's, you know, raised a lot of questions, and um, I certainly don't like to pretend that I have all the answers, but I'm really interested in thinking about this stuff and how housing is linked to a lot of different parts of our lives and also to different systems and institutions in the country. 
Yeah, and it you know housing housing does seem like the sort of like uh, most most political manifestation of of architecture because um, it's so linked with you know our, our our lives and our wallets in a way that a, a lot of other projects aren't or in a way that sort of design as such isn't um, and so I th- I think um, you know the the kind of approaches that have been made around how do we solve these these housing crises um, in cities are, are really interesting and so. Um, most recently uh, in Jacobin, you wrote um, an article about Yimbis uh, that was called What's in My Backyard. Um, so for those who are not familiar, can you tell us what a Yimby is and, and who, these, who these folks are? Sure. So I guess the really basic answer is that Yimby stands for Yes in My Backyard, and it's a play on a more common acronym, which is NIMBY, not in my backyard. Um, and I talk about this in the article, but uh, NIMBYs, are typically um, homeowners who, uh, or property owners who oppose um, a single development in a particular neighborhood that's adjacent to theirs. Um, and often there are themes of racism and class prejudice that go along with NIMBYism. You often hear about suburban homeowners uh, opposing a multifamily development or um, more affluent folks opposing an affordable housing development. And so I think the way that uh, Yimbis have really positioned themselves is to say that uh, development can be good and that they are supporting the potential of development to, um, to provide more housing opportunities. So I do want to offer the disclaimer that I didn't do extensive uh, research or uh, interview a lot of Yimbis for my article. I do know some folks who identify with the movement, and I've talked to them a little bit, but I certainly don't want to provide the perspective that I'm, like, inside the movement. Um, I think that would be a little unfair. Um, but it's really uh, this sort of national movement of Yimbyism has really been gathering steam over the last uh, last few years, and it's linked not just to housing, but also to kind of smart growth ideas around urban development. I would say that Yimbys are typically kind of urban technocrats, who um, are focused on particular policy solutions as the best way to improve uh, quality of life in cities. Yeah, and technocratic solutions that are totally market-based, right? I, I think, like, the uh, the way that I always think about it, and, and maybe you can tell me if this is off-base, is that, like, y- you know, if if you're thinking about the market fairly simplistically and, and apolitically, then if housing is expensive, the solution is to build more of it, right? Uh, but that clearly doesn't sort of tell the, the whole story. Um, and I think part of that, too, is that, uh, you know, in, in the article you talk about uh, the Massachusetts Democratic Party um, nearly incorporating a sort of very progressive platform on housing issues that sort of went beyond let's build more housing, um, and and that was kind of um, that effort was kind of killed by by YMBs. Um What were some of the policies in that platform that sort of went be- went beyond this sort of like a market impulse of just build more? Um, so a big one was rent control and. For any listeners who know about the history of rent control in Massachusetts, it's been a very controversial issue. Um, Boston and two surrounding cities had rent control until the mid-'90s when the landlord lobby organized to pass a statewide referendum banning rent control. So um, obviously having support for rent control in the party platform doesn't mean that it's going to happen, but it's a very 
sensitive topic for folks in the state. And so uh, one of the items was to, um, to express support for rent control. Another was for um, more inclusionary zoning, affordable housing, set-asides in new developments, uh, tenant protections, including just cause eviction uh, regulations, and community land trust and other non-market solutions. Yeah, that's really interesting. We have the this sort of same issue in in Illinois. Um, you know, housing comes up a lot on on this show, and and that's that's one of the things we've talked to about activists working here. Illinois has the same sort of uh, ban on on rent control, and in Chicago, um, it's becoming increasingly important that 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 that's something that gets overturned. But you know, in in a very blue state, um, even folks are are sort of reluctant to do that. I think it's it's maybe a, sim- a similar sort of uh, political topography. Yeah, but I, I also I think it's interesting strategically to sort of use the state level Democratic Party platform as a territory to kind of fight for those policies. I'm curious if you can talk more about that and just sort of the political forces and powers that are operating um, to shape those those platforms. Um, I guess is it correct to say that Yimbys themselves don't really have much power, being sort of urban technocrats, but that they provide an ideological cover for this kind of, um, you know, more uh, I don't know, sinister, <laughs> you could say, uh, landlord lobby um, and, and other conservative Democrats. And I'm, I'm also curious yeah, so, how those groups are funded, these Yimby groups. So I think um, it's a point that you're talking about the individuals or the ideology. I think probably a lot of the people who consider themselves Yimby's are not currently in positions of political power. They might be housing policy people. They might be. Um, local activists, but I think ideologically the idea of Yimbyism is very politically appealing, uh, especially to folks who both want to be seen as progressive and also want to be able to court developers and developer money, which I think is both big city mayors and a lot of other politicians in blue states and progressive cities. So I do think that, um, you know, there are some people who identify with the Indy movement, like um, Scott Wiener, who's a San Francisco County supervisor uh, in the Bay Area, and I think the Bay Area is kind of the ground zero of Indyism. Um, But increasingly, it seems like there is a move towards um, using that ideology as um, as a political force, and I think the sort of technocratic ideology of the Indy pretty aligned with the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Um, in terms of funding, I think, uh, you know, there are actual formal Yimby organizations. Some of them do receive funding from developers. Some of them operate as volunteer organizations or 501c3s. So I think it's really a mix depending on, um, on which group you're looking at. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I think I don't want to let NIMBYs off the hook either, because <laughs> um, previously we've had Maya Duksimova on the show um, who, who talked about some of the things happening in Chicago um, with NIMBYs who were basically um, opposing affordable housing, a, a pretty mild affordable housing project um, using a, a, a lot of coded racism. Um, and I'm curious what some of the problems are with NIMBYism, um, if we can call it that, and um, in what ways is also the NIMBY-YIMBY uh, thing kind of a false dichotomy? Yeah, so I don't want to let NIMBYs off the hook here either, and 
So I, I do want to say that NIMBYs usually are bad, and there's not... It's a very self-interested approach to looking at a neighborhood. I think uh, the prototypical NIMBY is really focused on protecting their own property interests, um, whether it be their home or um, if they're like an absentee owner, a property that they specifically own, and setting that against um, something that might be valuable for their surrounding neighborhood. Um, I think EMBs are sort of protecting property values and the idea of the property market on a more broad scale. So a lot of EMBs are renters. They're not necessarily protecting property that they own, oh, but they're yeah. invested in the housing market and development as a way to create value and create housing. Um, and I think one of the things that I have found really frustrating is... Um, because NIMBYism is so widely reviled in progressive circles, NIMBYs often will try to say that everything that is not NIMBY is NIMBY. So if you're not pro-development, it means you're kind of self-interested and not looking at the bigger picture. Um, and the, the reason for the title of my piece is that I think we have to be a little bit more sophisticated in the way that we look at developments that are happening. Um, we have to be able to ask, um, is this development project actually going to benefit people who live in the surrounding area? Is it going to harm them? If so, what are we doing about this? Um, you know, I looked at an article recently about the 606 project in Chicago, yeah. um, turning the Bloomingdale Trail into a bike lane. And, um, you know, a lot of people are excited about that project in Chicago. It's creating a whole new bike lane, but it's also really driving gentrification in Humboldt Park, and housing advocates are talking about the need when you have projects like that to focus first on existing neighborhoods and how to stabilize communities before investing in a project that is going to cause a lot of gentrification. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because they, they actually have um, instituted some pretty pretty good uh, uh, policies but way after the fact and it's and it's totally sort of too late you know they they're and and they are frankly sort of uh, yimby policies that have to do with maintaining you know the number of units right so now they have these these things around the 606 areas around the 606 where you basically get a gigantic fine um, if you're trying to uh, demolish something and build fewer units um, or if you are sort of combining um, you know um, uh, units in a building you know t turning a two flat into a single family home or whatever um, which I think which I think is interesting and it also makes me think that you know may maybe the third way here um oh, third way um is mimby right like it's it almost seems like uh the sort of like properly left position is maybe in my backyard like you know t t tell us what you're bringing <laughs> right and i will say i think one of the challenges of trying to organize around um housing justice and stabilizing communities is that um a lot of really strong organizing is taking place on the neighborhood level or on the local level, but many of these policies are set at a citywide or state or even federal mm, level, yeah. and so sometimes there's a mismatch between um, the levers of policy that we're able to pull and the ones that are really controlling some of the problems, and like I said, because gentrification and displacement are linked to broader um, 
sort of processes within capitalism, it's really hard sometimes to figure out how to get there. But I think um, sometimes EMBs don't want to be bothered with asking those questions um, and really want to work within the systems that exist now and see that as the best way to move forward. Right. Yeah, and I guess that that leads into my next question, because in the article you talk about how Yimby ideas in affluent suburbs, um, you know, where, I think, to quote, uh, where development is often inextricably linked with opposition to affordable housing and racial inclusion, um, Yimby ideas could be fairly progressive in those contexts. But as you write, it's it's an issue, um, and as you just said, it's an issue that they don't differ between the sort of wealthy suburbs and gentrifying urban neighborhoods and other neighborhoods in the city. Um, and a Yimby, uh, uh, the Yimby emphasis is more on construction wherever developers can see an opportunity to build, end quote. And so uh, how can we as leftists sort of frame our principles on housing in a way that's as clear as Yimby or NIMBY? Because um, that seems to be also one of the strengths is that, you know, they, they even have these sort of catchy names, right? Yimby and NIMBY, um, you know, and everyone kind of knows what's going on. Um, based on, on those things. And, and, you know, NIMBY, I guess, was also originally a sort of, you know, epithet. But now now it's something that folks have kind of taken on. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious how, how leftists can sort of frame our principles here um, uh, um, and argue clearly for, for what we would like to see. So I think uh, connecting to what I mentioned earlier, what I would really like to see is a national movement for housing justice. And we can see examples of this in... Um, the consensus that's growing around Medicare for All and the national conversation about the fact that the market doesn't work as a, a way to provide health care to everyone in this country. And I think um, the work that we need to do is sort of build that consensus at the national level. The market also doesn't work to provide housing to all. Mm. And, um, you know, the Right to the City Alliance nationally has started some of this conversation. They've got a campaign called Homes for All, and they have uh, organizations in different cities that are working on this. But really, I think a lot of um, a lot of the conversation has to become much wider, and we have to start challenging the idea that if we just build more, it's going to serve people who are not served by the housing market now. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, when we're talking about the market solutions, too, I, th- I think the article also really hit the nail on the head when when you pointed out that the problem isn't just that, uh, you know, there's a kind of pro-development um, logic that's pervasive and insists on housing as a commodity. Um, the pro- it's, it's also uh, another issue is that pr- the belief uh, that this is a problem of supply and demand and we just need more housing is kind of a fundamentally flawed argument. Um, I think in the article you write, in order for expanded supply to solve the housing crisis, land prices would have to be much much lower than they are now, or the state would have to restrict the price of land. So it's, you know, not just about the kind of number of units, but also the value of the land underneath. And I'm, I'm curious if you can talk more about that. Sure. So in a place like Boston or New York City, when developers buy land in order to build housing, uh, they pay a lot of money because land in New York City and Boston and other cities is at a premium. And so... You know, most developers are for-profit developers. Even if they're not for not for profits, they still have to be able to earn revenue. And so, if they've paid a lot for the land, um, they're going to have to charge really high rents in any building that is developed. Um, 
in order to get the return on their investment that makes it worthwhile for them to do the, pro- the project at all, in order for them to get loans and construction financing. Um, you know, most developers are in the business to do that. But even if they weren't, that's sort of how the development world is structured. And right. so unless the price of land is restricted or brought down in some way, new housing units that get built are going to be expensive. Um, and so, you know, you can get from this into, like, George's ideas about land tax or um, figuring out how to take housing out of the, the land market. But I think a lot of it does get back to um, the price of land, like the value of property and the way that that is transferred. Yeah, and and I, and it and it really does, uh, you know, open open up the conversation about pu- public housing, right? And why the sort of um, turn away from public housing as such um, has been such a disaster for um, uh, poor and working class families who need affordable housing, because all of those public housing projects are um, on government land, which uh, is not certainly not immune from fluctuations in land value, but um, is is isolated by it because it's owned by the public and, and, and not a developer. And I, and I that's right. A, and yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I didn't talk about in the article, but I find really interesting is that a lot of the public institutions that we have were created sort of on the backs of the failure of private institutions to do the same thing. So in New York City, there were a lot of um, limited dividend corporations building affordable housing in the early 19th century, um, and they weren't able to charge rents that were actually affordable to working people. Um, And then during the New Deal, um, you know, Harold Dickies and other people from the Roosevelt administration stepped in and really did a lot of work to create... Um, under the Wagner Act, the institution of public housing. You see the same thing in many cities with public transportation. Um, a lot of public transportation systems started as a bunch of different private lines intersecting, and different states and municipalities said, hey, this isn't really working. It's not the most efficient way to get people around, and they effectively took over those systems. And now we see in many of those same cities that logic working in reverse because of a lack of investment um, Government officials are promoting a narrative that public systems don't work and we need to revert to private systems. Right. Yeah, this is a, I, I don't know if we're at the stage of history repeating itself um, as tragedy or as farce, but either way, it's uh, not, not, not good. <laughs> Um, yeah, and and I'm I'm also you, I think that's really interesting history, um, and and I'm 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 super happy you brought it up, and um, man, I, I hope we can talk more about that in a future episode. Um, I'm I'm also curious about this idea that you mentioned in the article about filtering, um, which is is sort of like I guess also a history repeating itself, sort of um, uh, as as tragedy uh, idea, um, where the Yimbis. Uh, insist that the sort of housing stock, uh, the good quality housing stock will filter down, uh, kind of trickle down, right, to um, uh, 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 the rest of us. Um, I'm, I'm, is, is that a, a right characterization of that idea? Maybe it's a little simplistic. I don't know. Right. So filtering is basically trickle down housing. Um, and it's kind of an insulting idea, if you think about it, that um, new luxury modern housing that is built um, will be occupied by affluent people, and when 
affluent people who are currently living in existing, maybe slightly older housing stock, move into this newly created luxury housing, they will leave behind their older, maybe less modern housing units, and those can be occupied by regular people and so on, uh, all the way down to presumably the worst housing stock, which will be occupied by poor people. Um, and so, obviously, this is not... Um, sort of flawed on its face because of the assumption that the type of housing that you get should be based on um, on your income and on how much money your household has. Uh, but we also know that this really is not how housing markets work. Uh, for one thing, um, people sometimes like to live in old historic buildings. Um, I think in many cities, um, there's uh, a lot of value, too, in living in a historic district um, and... Um, living in a building that maybe has some kind of character and some older features. So it's not necessarily an assumption that all rich people are going to live in newly created buildings. Um, but we can also see that a lot of existing housing stock, um, like apartments in multifamily buildings, are now being used as Airbnb units or um, in larger apartment buildings are being used as investment properties for multinational investors. Right. And so even if all the rich people move out of their brownstone apartments into luxury condos, there's no guarantee that uh, working-class people are going to be able to afford to live in the units that are left behind or that those units even will be available to them. And there's a study out from UC Berkeley recently that sort of debunks this idea of filtering as a way to solve some of the housing problems. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think uh, it ties into a, a pet theory that I have and that, that, that I will air right now, which is basically, you know, the way that we've built housing um, in, in, in almost any context, whether it's a single family detached home or a kind of new mixed use condo building, because of the developer logics, they build them to turn around and sell and, and there's no quality in them. Um, and so, you know, I think you, you see it now in the kind of, um, you know, first ring of suburbs. Uh, you know that were built in the '60s and the '70s, um, um, and the when when poor people move into these houses, they're no longer appreciating assets, right? So it's it's another way in which the kind of uh, wealth gap uh, gets expanded and perpetuated, um, just because the quality of the building itself um, is 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 not there. Um, so the idea that this kind of housing stock will filter down and, and, and be somehow, you know, part of an upward uh, trajectory and wealth accumulation for everyone is kind of is kind of bogus to me, especially if you are, you know, talking about land values and considering that, um, that, you know, that's where the appreciation really happens. So to talk about rising land values, but also things filtering down and housing quality, um, it definitely just does not, does not add up. Right. And there are sort of two different logics that work here, depending on whether you think of housing as something that people are going to live in, or whether you think of housing as something that can be to make a profit, and those different logics usually are not working. You know, they're oppositional, so right. you kind of can't try to treat housing in both ways. Right. 
Yeah, and and we recently spoke on the show with Byron Sigcho of Pilsen Alliance um, about the anti-gentrification fight um, in Pilsen here in Chicago, um, and we hit on uh, on a lot of the same ideas. Um, and and I'm and I'm curious to hear from you to kind of expand expand on our conversation with Byron, uh, how we as the left. Uh, can join and support fights for housing affordability. Um, I think part of it is um, embracing those ideas you just raised. Um, it's, a, it's a big question, but what are the kind of strategies and tactics um, that we can deploy? And do you think there are any really good organizations out there that can sort of um, lead, lead the way in this, in this fight and, and how we think about it? Sure. So, um, I mean, in Boston, where I'm from, have uh, an organization called City Life Vita Urbana that has been around um, for several decades, and their model is both um, providing individualized legal services and support to folks who are at risk of eviction and displacement, but also organizing tenant unions in different buildings and really building tenant power. Um, and one thing that we've started to see is tenants winning additional protections from uh, foreclosure and also winning the right to purchase their buildings when the buildings are up for sale and either assign the ownership to a nonprofit or um, in cities like Washington, D.C., tenants can own the building as a limited equity co-op. So I think forming tenant unions um, is a really important strategy, trying to build solidarity with with people who are in similar situations. Um, And I think... uh, you know, America has been kind of a homeownership society for a long time. I think we're increasingly seeing people who are renting because they don't have the means to own a home, and so there's a lot of potential for organizing there. Um, and also, uh, you know, looking at different solutions that are um, taking housing out of the market, whether that's public housing and trying to force this national conversation about investment in public housing, or whether it's on a smaller scale, um, community land trusts and cooperatives and um, other non-market trusts. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and uh, we have a little under five minutes left uh, with you here, but um, I wanted to draw a lis- listeners' attention to another article that you wrote in Jacobin um, that was very compelling about the sort of suburbanization of the working class. So we only have a few minutes left, but um, you know, obviously this is an issue that's sort of linked to housing affordability and urban issues. Um, and I think it's easy to kind of have a, a monolithic idea about who lives in the suburbs and what they are. But I'm curious if you can just sort of hint, hint for us at that article. Maybe people will uh, be compelled to go read it uh, on their own um, online. Um, but yeah, how, how do these issues link to the suburbs um, and, and, and how do we organize there? Well, so as people are... Um getting displaced from urban centers because they can no longer afford the cost of living, uh, a lot of them are moving to outlying areas. And so I think in the last uh, five years or so, we've seen the balance tip to where there are now more poor people in suburbs than there are in cities. Um, And that means a lot of things. Um, It means, one, that people's uh, social networks are disrupted. Uh, If people are moving from a dense urban neighborhood where they know their neighbors, maybe they have family living nearby, they may, those networks may get totally blown apart as people get displaced and move to different areas. Um, and it also means that people don't have access to a lot of the social services and resources that exist in urban centers, mm. um, like public libraries, health clinics, um, different social service agencies, 
Um, and it means often that people are much more car dependent um, instead of being able to use public transportation. So one of the things that I talked about um, is the need to sort of think about how to organize folks outside of urban environments. Um, although I should say that I do organize in an urban environment, so I think there are folks who would be much more qualified than me to speak to some of the strategies that are working in those um, outlying areas. But I think really focusing on issues that resonate with people um, on a local level, um, thinking about how to build power within local political systems, um, and um, you know, figuring out how to knit people together around a common identity. Yeah, I thought one of the interesting um, sort of strategies that you proposed uh, that uh, that uh, that leftists can advocate for is the annexation of the suburbs, right? Because it does sort of build um, uh, a basis for solidarity between low and middle income workers throughout a region. I thought that was very interesting. Right, and in some ways, the um, the end of cities annexing small outlying suburbs is kind of an early form of nimbyism on an urban scale where suburban voters said, I don't really want those urban poor people to be part of my city, so I'm not going to uh, become part of this urban network, even though there's a lot of resources that come with that. And yeah. so it, it very much strengthens uh, the class divide, especially like in the school system where school funding is so based on property taxes. Um, right. Yeah, it's really interesting. I I think uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting food for thought, and I think uh, especially in a city like Boston, um, you know, there there's a real basis for um, you know making that as a political demand. Um, so we got a few minutes left here, and I thought that the article um, about the suburbanization of the working class had, had this really great point about the role of organizing in the suburbs that is totally widely applicable to like how we think about building a better future um, in all of our movements, independent of housing even. And I'd like to sort of uh, read it um, as a wrap-up, if, if that's cool with you. Sure. All right. So um, here, here we go. Um, we must resist the assumption that most people respond instinctively to an injustice without understanding how it affects them personally. A campaign to cut the U.S. military budget is unassailable in principle, but it will attract mostly new leftists seeking to relive the glory days of the anti-war movement. Local leaders know what the most pressing and specific issues in their communities are. An organizer's task is to facilitate a unified movement around those issues and connect them to the bigger picture. Rather than follow the Alinskyan model of organizing for organizing's sake, we should recognize that base building is a step toward political power and systemic change. But the process is slow, and we have to meet people where they're at in order to go get where we need to go. In the meantime, local campaigns should educate people about the economic relationships that connect suburbs, cities, metropolitan regions, as well as the larger structures that govern capitalist society. Underlying these campaigns, however diverse in nature, should be David Harvey's right to the city. The idea that people have a right to the value they create in a particular location and they have the right to remain despite speculative pressures. Fundamentally, it's a question of creating a con consciousness and using that consciousness to build strong relationships and organizations. Uh, end quote. That's Karen Narasky. Um Karen, do you have any last thoughts? Um, well, just to say that I think this is a super interesting time to be having this conversation. Obviously, we have our first president who is also a real estate developer and his son-in-law is a noted real estate developer so we're seeing these issues play out 
in the national political sphere as well as in our neighborhoods. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what kinds of movements we are able to build on the left to promote housing justice and housing for all. Same. And um, Karen, thanks so much again for coming on Buildings on Air. This was a great conversation, and I hope people uh, um, take, take it to heart and um, get out there and get organizing. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and we're here in the studio with uh, Kate Wagner, who's an activist, blogger, um, and sort of, as, as I've learned, um, hanging out with her yesterday and a little bit this afternoon, um, a, a, a totally brilliant ar- architectural thinker. Um, you might know Kate from her work as McMansion Hell on the internet. Um, Kate, how's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, yeah, you know, we were talking with, um, uh, or we'll be talking with Nick Cordy and um, Joanna Kloppenberg about the kind of biennial and some of the criticisms that we might level at it. And I think um, you're here for the biennial, so we might get into some of that too here. Um, but, you know, just to say one of the great things about the biennial and, and, uh, is, is that it does bring a lot of people together to meet for the first time. And, um, you know, we met for the first time yesterday, so really excited to have you here. You were just kind of at the first opening salvo of um, biennial activities. Um, I don't know. What what did you think? <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, as a space, the cultural center, I'd never been to the cultural center before, so the, the domes are really impressive. Acoustically, yeah. though, horrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, That's right. I forgot the other part of your uh, bio, which is that you're a, a, a acoustician by training. <laughs> Close. I'm almost done with the training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Um, well, I think it's interesting. There was a variety of different uh, things on display. I I came because I wrote an article for the Biennial blog about um, Keith Crumwida. Is that how you say it? I think so. Uh, his book, Alice of Another America, which mm. is a sort of like critical uh, pseudo-utopian or tongue-in-cheek utopian uh, American uh, architectural treatise. It's like, it, it's like if you uh, put together Jeffersonian urban planning – and uh, like land allocation techniques to a critique of American consumerism, you would have that book, and it's amazing. Oh, interesting, yeah. Um, so that's what I came to see, and hopefully, I'll they have uh, they have these amazing drawings in the book uh, that are like they take classic paintings and they superpose like McMansions, like conglomerate McMansions, like in the background. Like, I they're see. just amazing, and they have them as like a huge wallpaper. And I hope someone takes my picture in front of it. Actually, <laughs> they'll be in my picture for a while. Yeah, we can we can make that arrangement. Oh, I'm sure. that would be that would be sick. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, and the other thing I think was interesting is, uh, as I I guess we were talking off off the air, uh, the, the resurgence of postmodernism in new practice just is, is shocking to me yeah. because I've been so buried in my own research um, about you know postmodernism in the vernacular realm that I've totally ignored its reentry into formal architecture. Yeah. I kind of saw the reentry of postmodernism in interior design starting around like 2015, but I didn't realize that it had also permeated the formal architectural discourse once more. Um, so there's kind of like a, a smattering of that. It, it's this sort of like pop, like aesthetic, uh, like the internet meme, you know, like the aesthetic, uh, like vaporwave kind of, <laughs> right, uh, right. kind of postmodernism. Uh, the coolest part I think of the exhibit this year is that they did a, um, Chicago Tribune, 
uh, tower contest. Right. Uh, like they did the the one, um, you know, the original one where, of course, you have Adolf Loos's uh, famous column. Right, which is uh, what expl- explain for those who might not know what the column is. Or I can do it. It's it's just a giant skyscraper that's one huge column. It's it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny that Adolf Loos did it. I still think to this day yeah. that it's funny. Yeah, the man who wrote Ornament and Crime making literally a building <laughs> that's a giant piece of ornament. It's pretty remarkable. Amazing. He's amazing. Um, but the so and of course there was a resurgence of that competition in the 1980s. Yeah. So you see all these great entries from like really postmodern architects. And the Loos column was revisited by Robert Am Stern, who yeah. did one with like a with like a LED marquee key at the top yeah. uh, just like totally I mean tongue-in-cheek and so this one is really interesting because you have a lot of you know different forms you have people who are working in more um, like material kind of constructions like there's one that's just made out of like steel or like what looks like you know really polished steel beams it's kind of like vaguely deconstructivist you have one that's like almost like mid-century formalism right. uh, that revisits the column theme for the third time which is a really interesting take on it and then you have one that's actually seems like an amalgamation of like of like postmodernism. it really re- almost reminds Reminds me of like uh, mannerism, right? Um, that there's like all these different mismatched arches and colonnades and whatnot all cobbled together in this in this skyscraper. It's a really startling thing to see because it's I mean it's it's based off of the concept of like the pastiche. Um, but that was really interesting to see all these like exhibits uh, or, or like the the new like the 2017 Chicago Tribune Tower Compass and they're huge actually. The the yeah, towers like themselves are like 16 tall, right? feet. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to see it in person. I'm very curious. Yeah, and I, it's interesting too that that um, this distinction between sort of like postmodernism um, and and its sort of like informal and vernacular uses and in, in, in history, uh, the use of history in that in that context, and it's sort of like more you know formal um, um, entry into architecture discourse, as you put it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm always curious like what the driving factor is behind all of these things, right? Like how do we connect uh, any of these cultural movements or styles or what have you um, to sort of larger socio-political issues? And um, being a sort of like activist and organizer who's also in, in DSA as am I, um, you can, you know, I, th- I think you're well positioned to be able to like think through sort of what the bigger structural um, implications are um, for this kind of architecture. Yeah. For, for like this postmodern resurgence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know at least uh, maybe, maybe it's, it's a lot to ask, like uh, to make a hot take based on one morning of the biennial. But, um, you know, one thing we had talked about was, you know, sort of um, McMansions. Right. And, 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 you know, that that's maybe more more familiar territory. That's less of a hot take. Um. Oh, well, I mean, I don't mind doing hot takes. All right. Uh, well, yeah. Cool. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so I think as far as the sort of you know, postmodern resurgence, a lot of, you know, these architects are probably like mid-career now, I guess they would say like 30s and 40s, well, mid, like early, still early career, but, you know, they're, they've, they've exited the, you know, architecture school program and they're starting their own firms and uh, they're starting, you know, they've taken a more theoretical path perhaps to, to design than a more, you know, really objective building kind of practice, like the building making practice rather than, uh, they're taking a more theoretical, yeah. I think, look at it. Yeah. I think that what's uh, really interesting about it is that I think to a certain degree, there is like a kind of nostalgia there because, I mean, of course, these were people who grew up probably in like the 80s, like the late 70s right. and the 80s. And right. so they 
their their youth is associated with those aesthetic motifs and so as you know you reach a certain age and you start to long for you know pine for youth that that does come back in sort of interesting ways in in people's like thought and design but at the same time i also think that um What's so interesting to me about, you know, postmodernity and the sort of postmodern aesthetic is that during its original inception with maybe I would say maybe this is incorrect with the exception of like, you know, radical um, architecture groups in Italy. Yeah. Uh, elsewhere, like in the U.S., like postmodernity was was essentially like the aesthetic of, ne- of neoliberalism. Right. Right. Um, this these sort of like historical um, motives and these or motifs rather and these coupled with like this like booming like economic uh like you know this economic development that happened you know during the reagan and thatcher eras uh and i how much of it is coincidence and how much of it is like aesthetic um connection with those economic ideals is like probably still being debated honestly but there's no doubt that like the shiny mall with the with the you know silver palm trees is postmodernism. the the old the permeation of that aesthetic into the consumer realm is is extremely uh it it was an ethos i mean you see all all these people like mourning the dead malls and stuff and mourning like this aesthetic of interior like when people renovate like old department stores from like the 80s and stuff like people get really upset Right. Because it's just so associated with like this childhood that came about during a time of relative economic prosperity. Of course, like we're feeling the effects of that now. But um, I mean, the the pre-bubble bursting was yeah. really kind of an interesting time to be like a child. Right. Um, you got to see like it seems like 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 light. It's like bright and fast is really kind of what it was like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also part of the reason why um, I don't know, like you our generation is maybe like more um, open to things like socialism is a little more radical um, than generations past because we're we're like recession babies, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I was 18 in 2008 and like, you know, saw what happened and was going to school then and wasn't sure if I was going to have a job when I graduated and all these other things, um, um, you know, and then also having grown up in the suburbs and lived for a short time in a McMansion, you know, you it's it's easy to sort of like uh, connect the dots, at least sort of like emotionally to just like reject like all, all of that, even as um, some people have a certain kind of nostalgia for it or that nostalgia sort of reemerges in, in interesting and funny ways, like, you know, in architecture. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, Jameson uh, ca- says that, you know, Post-moder- post-modernity is is the commodification of life. Yeah, it's the commodification of all of the the aspects of life. Every, it's the the commodification of consumption itself. Right. Yeah, which I think is just really fascinating. And so, you know, the things like the McMansion and which were McMansions are essentially houses that are designed to sell. Mm. They're not designed to live in. They're designed with a certain like tick you know checkbox. Like it's a checklist of things that. People, developers, it's like, oh, it has to have the granite countertops, it has to have the wood floors, it has to have the cathedral ceilings in every room, et cetera, et cetera, because these things 
where it doesn't have anything to do with the actual like physical equity of the house, which is, you know, of course, based on square footage or energy efficiency, right. land values. But it had to do with the with the resale value, mm-hmm. which these houses were were designed most of the most of the time during, you know, this extremely speculative period of real estate. Sure. Uh, that where it was just you would buy the house and then you would sell it in 10 years or less. Right. I mean, you would buy and sell and buy and sell. There are people who bought ho- and sold a house like every year. Yeah, which is wild. And it's, uh, you know, yeah, definitely commodification, right? Just whole whole hog. <laughs> it's the commodification of life. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because like, you know, in the McMansion, it's you're selling this like kind of fake experience, right? It's like, oh, it's not a bathtub. It's a, it's a spa, right? It's, mm. you have to like, introduce these these items from the commercial realm like the realm of like going out into the city and buying and and selling goods um like you know having like you know going to the city and going to the spa instead of like you just bring that into your house so you can just have like the entirety of life within one um you know within one enclosure and it becomes this this sort of like the luxury of isolation i think is really what it what it comes down to and it is like it's it is like a sort of a personification of the commodification of life you can not only just buy and sell your house yeah. but you're buying and selling you know your entire lived experience because it's so isolated sure uh, you're buying and selling like a house with a movie theater <laughs> in it you're so it just yeah. comes in it's not just buying and selling the place where you sleep at night and where you feed you know you're, you feed yourself or you raise your kids. It's really not about that, is it? At a certain point, it becomes about how much can I get for this? And like, because they just ran out of like items to put on that list that they had to come up with these absurdities, like having the like the home movie right. theater with like the actual movie theater chairs. Sure. Or having like the home bar, which is the saddest thing where you would you, you, you like go down the staircase and you're like, hey, honey, we're going to play the bar game where you come and pretend to be the bartender and I pretend to be lonely. Um, but it's like it's... Because I guess it's this sort of um, rejection of public life, too. Right. I mean, especially, I mean, it's a physical rejection because the excerpts where most of these huge houses were built are so far away from any kind of real civilization that it requires, like, at least, like, 15 minutes each way yeah. in a car, right? right? So, you know, to to sell people, like, their own, like, small lives within this house is right. appealing to people who, like, don't want to, you know, go out. And yeah. this kind of isolation, I think, war on young people. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. part of the reason why they all go to school and they all go to the to the city. Yeah. Um, I think it's not just, like, you know, a generational thing. I think when you're raised in this relative isolation where you have to go 15 minutes each way to, like, go get some milk, I yeah. mean— what kind of life is that? Right. You feel like you're completely cut off from the world, like you're completely cut off from like your social um, interactions. And before the internet came along, it really was that way. You right. were really isolated, and but the internet really changed that. I think, um, which you know, it's of course it's its own aesthetic in general. This like a, this super functionalist kind of aesthetic mm-hmm. of n- no distractions in the actual space, only phone. Yeah. Yeah, and I, we were talking about it yesterday in in conjunction that kind of isolation in conjunction with um, the book uh, Pastoral Capitalism mm-hmm. is that what it's called? Yeah, which I think is a really interesting read, and and that sort of is reemerging in the context of all these like new tech companies that are building corporate campuses and in in kind of out, outside of city centers, and, and I think the takeaway is that like it really precludes you from. Um, um, civic engagement right because there's these bubbles that exist out really outside of sort of like you know civil society in in a, in a meaningful sense right um which which um makes it really easy to um i don't know take a dim view on the rest uh, on the rest of the world right yeah yeah and it isolates you politically 
I mean, that's why, like, these excerpts are hotbeds of, you know, reactionary behavior, because Mm -hmm. it becomes, like, defending your own castle rather than actually engaging with, like, the people around you. Because, you know, you don't want to engage with the people around you. Like, you know, we never talk to the neighbors or anything. Right. You know, it's just... It is this, this this place, and it also like you know I guess it's kind of almost interesting that because of this like self imposed isolation, it's it's very much like a material construction of selfishness. Mm. It is it is the the idea of like this the whole kingdom is mine, mm-hmm. the entire town is in is in my house, and I don't need anything from anybody else. Yeah, I don't need no one needs my I don't need to help anybody. I right. don't need to go out and engage with anybody. Yeah. Um, if anything, these people go to church and that's it. Right. Um, and so it's just, it's really interesting. It keeps these people, their political participation is basically uh, comes down to like homeowner associations and voting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that also fuels like a sort of like the young young people in their desire to be politically engaged because that just wasn't an option. Sure. When I was growing up, being politically engaged meant watching the news and voting. <laughs> right. um, you know, that was really kind of what it is. Um, but what's interesting is like this is not a new concept. I right. mean, Henry Lefer in the Architecture of Enjoyment talks about the bourgeois so apartment. Good. Yeah, uh, he talks about like you know like this kind of like the the you know the countertop bar and like the kitchen is like this like this sort of like social like restaurant like space. It's not about like having just like a place to sit and eat. It's about having like the the idea of like a restaurant where you watch somebody prepare the food. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the it's the idea of like relegating the entirety of of civic life and civic society into. Uh, either like mirroring that or just like isolating it within this own uh, this this small apartment to be it's it's this kind of you know execution of wealth of self sufficiency of not having to participate and go and see the working class working in the restaurant right it's like you can really just be alone and you can be isolated from the realities of you know the capitalist system. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. well, and it's it's funny the way that like you know these things play out ideologically, right? Because I, it's it's certainly not the case that um, you know people go out into the world and are like, I would really like to be isolated <laughs> socially, right? Right? And you know, I, I think um, uh, of my parents. Uh, hi, mom and dad, if you're listening. Uh, you know, who who were like, you know, th- suburbs, good schools, right? Like, you know good quality life, have a backyard for the kids to play in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like it, it's, it's certainly well-meaning, but it, it doesn't absolve it in any way from the kind of realities that you're, you're you know, that, that, that are there, the, the isolating quality of it, the sort of like, um, uh, and, and the, the political implications for that. Um, and yeah, so it, it, it's the way that taste um, and these sorts of desires become manifest in buildings accidentally and purposefully is really fascinating to me. Yeah, and I think another one of the really fascinating things about um, uh, McMansion Hell and the kind of research that you've been doing is that, you know, it's part of it and the thing that makes it so accessible is that, like, you know, we can all kind of look at these these pictures that you've marked up and be like, oh, my God, this this is <laughs> this house is, is monstrous. Like, what is going on here? But there's, there's a really deep research project involved in it, too, um, which is why I think, you know— come for the laughs and, st- and stay for the, the cultural criticism, right? <laughs> like, you know, the, you have you've kind of built this catalog of um, details and architectural features, if you can call them that, that sort of characterize, um, um, you know, the, these projects. Um, I'm curious if you could tell us what some of those things are. 
it's funny because it's kind of like I said, there it, within the language of the blog, there is a kind of satirical architectural dictionary. Mm. Like the, of course, like for like the roof lines, of course, like the nub is like the most famous one, right. where where it's it's like a, a pyramidal on gate on side gabled roof essentially is what mm. it, is what happens. The, these roof forms are so complex that that ends up just being this like little peak in the middle. Yeah, that just makes no no sense and just looks absurd. Really, just like a pimple on the top of the house, <laughs> and. Um, you know, of course, like the the thing, like the like attached turret that's architecturally out of place, being like the Pringles can of shame, right? The Pringles can of shame. Uh, the so <laughs> like the lawyer foyer, because uh, <laughs> you ever walk into like a law firm, it's like it's like all marble and, yeah. and stuff. Like that. But then you like go like literally outside of that foyer, and it's like all cubicles and sad. Right. That's you know, really kind of the the same. It's the same effect. And the uh, there's I mean there there are other there are other terms right like the car hole being like the uh-huh. the garage yeah um, just because I mean it really is like the garage becomes like this this you know space for Americans where literally they just store their their cars but like at, a sa- at the same time you know I mean some people work in their garages some people mm. do other things in their garages but when the garage is like for three car like three cars why it's just like a hole where you put your cars right. at a certain right. point <laughs> it's like I don't need those platitudes about like the workshop or anything like that because that's not what this is for yeah um for sure um you're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio and this is Buildings on Air and um I'm talking with Kate Wagner still had to do the station ID. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think um, it's, it is really, there's, there's all these specific architectural features associated with them. And I, and I kind of have flashbacks from the, the suburbs of, of all of these things. And um, I think about my, my poor mother, who's a, 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 a very gifted interior designer, um, who did a very noble job of, uh, you know, addressing and repairing some of these like sort of wild, you know, open spaces. It's kind of like, what, what can you do with that much expansive drywall? It becomes really overwhelming. Um, the complex roof thing is really interesting because it, we were talking about this a little bit at the bar uh, uh, also, but on, on some level you you think, you look at these houses and you're like, this seems like so much more effort than building something elegant and simple. Um, but um, it's really not, right? Like it's like uh, these contractors sort of go and they just do it, I guess. I mean, from my understanding, like, the roof lines are a result of, like, cut corners. Yeah. Um, they're probably, a lot of the time, I feel like they're not intended to look like that. Or, like, in, you know, of course, you ever go on house plan sites? Right. There's there's very, almost, like, very different looking. There, there's, there, sometimes these roof lines are, like, executed in an extremely chaotic way. Sure. And I think the more custom features the homeowner or the build, or the homeowner demands of the builder the more absurd that these get because each home house plan is just like a base design that the that the builder you know of course takes requests from the 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 homeowner's you know it's of course a custom home right, right. and to a certain extent like there's only so far uh, there's only so much you can put in one space right there's only so much you can do <laughs> right. with that those kinds of interior volumes if you want cathedral ceilings in every room how does that manifest itself structurally it makes you know, there are, you see these pictures, right? And you, and it's like walking all these sloped ceilings and bizarre, um, like these bizarre articulations yeah. above windows and whatnot that are just like sometimes they just like they just cut across like a window. It's like actually just like really cutting. <laughs> there's a pipe or something in there, right? There's there's some sort of structural feature that they had to like cover up because they couldn't fit it anywhere else, right? Um, yeah. But it's like funny because it's almost like it's like walking into like an Erico and Moss building or something like <laughs> it's just like just like this thing <laughs> jutting out. Everywhere, yeah. and it just like makes a sense, and you're angry, like. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a uh, there's a great story about uh, 
um, um, the Rem Kulas building on IIT campus, um, where, you know, it's a, it's a very great example of sort of deconstructivist architecture. And there's this one spot in the building where there's this giant air conditioning duct that just flies across the building. And um, it looks like part of the architecture. It's like, you know, as a, as a kind of smart architect, you go and you'd be like, oh, I see what Rem Kulas is doing there. He's exposing the ceiling duct and he's not putting a soffit around it because he wants to tell us, you know, something about air conditioning. But apparently when he saw it in person, he was irate that, um, you know, this air conditioning duct was there, even though it looks like a totally seamless part of the architectural idea, which I always think is really funny. It's like, oh, deconstructivism. It's like you can't, it's not just accidents. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's so funny because it it's like intentional chaos, right? Yeah. You know, and it's funny because McMansions are not intentional chaos. Yeah, there's sort of like an interesting dichotomy there, I guess, if you wanted to like really articulate or like elaborate on that point. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you know, I think an, another thing is like the sort of like classical idioms that um, you know these these projects use. Uh, you know, I think there was a, a request online when we sort of announced that you you were going to be on buildings on air or something where um, you know we were talking about. There's this horrible Twitter account. I forget what it's called, and I don't even want to oh, name it. Oh, it's Architectural Revival. Okay, yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> Arc Revival. Arc Revival. Ugh. Yeah, uh, it's the kind of thing that makes you pray for a dislike button. Um, but basically, they are sort of advocating for return to classical architecture um, for, you know, typical sort of like white supremacist like you know garbage ideas about some sort of return to a golden age of european culture that never really existed and even when it did exist was was just objectively uh, uh horrible <laughs> or at least uh, had had really horrible parts that shouldn't be ignored so i'm i'm curious you know what what confluence you see between you know the mcmansion and and those sorts of ideas um and also um, you know, I know you have an affinity for sort of late modern architecture. Um, we also talked about liking like real classicism and how these people just get wrong these ideas. What's so interesting to me is that these people want to build what is essentially what like, you know, Jameson and others called like the simulacrum, right? The, right. the copy for which no original exists. Right. Like they want to build like this, this like great, you know, sort of like temple to the past, right? But it was a past where like that never existed, right? Right. Uh, there was, you know, there were always Jews in America. There were always people of color in America. Right. Like, it's like this idea of like just, and, and in Europe too, there was always like this, you know, there's, it's not just like one day everything wasn't white anymore. <laughs> you know, it's like this is so stupid. People have this idea that like just everything was like white and then the people came or whatever. Right. It's just absurd. But uh, what's so interesting about that is, is of course, like they have to employ um, classical architecture, not, I mean, there's like this appeal to traditionalism, which I mean, is bit that, that can be benign though. The appeal mm. to traditionalism is, is, well, you know, it's a little benign sometimes like, you know, things like new urbanism because people like, you know, their traditional houses. Right. So like we can just do them in like tasteful ways or whatever. I'm not a new urbanist, but like, I get it. Right. Uh, and then there, you know, of course, like, you know, postmodern classicism, all that. It's like, it's really, you know, the, the readoption of architectural ornament isn't in and of itself like politically toxic. Right. Right. Uh, but what is politically toxic is the what they're talking. They're not talking about like recreating traditional architecture using modern materials. I think what they're really implicating is recreating traditional architecture in the way that it was built back in the actual 
day right. back in like the, the 19th century and earlier, right? Which requires extraordinary amounts of labor, often brutal. Right. Um, this was before a lot of these buildings that they like idolize are like, of course, before trade unions, before mm-hmm. building trade unions, or pe- the days when people still died working on buildings. Yeah. You know, Edmund Burke talks about like the uh, part of like the sublime, right? Is right. is the is the realization of the labor that goes into like right. building these these places and he he talks about stonehenge like how much force does it take to like get these rocks to be like this where they're so permanent right um but they've stayed like this for years and years and years it must have taken so much energy like people toiling and all these like you know of course it's edmund burke so he was like yes all the blood and all of the death or whatever because you know i'm I'm just that's actually his little blurb about it is really not that long but like he talks like this in other writings of his about like the french revolution he was like the French Revolution fighting against the monarchy was bad, but the guillotine was sick. <laughs> like that was like his. Uh, that's like Edmund Burke on the French Revolution. Yeah. Uh, but he's like, they got the mass death. That part was awesome. <laughs> that's kind of like the same thing, though. It's like it's it's you're you're putting there's there is a sort of power dynamic there where you're putting like the inferior people into positions of like hard toiled labor to yeah. create the vision of like the great white race or whatever. Even, even as you're yeah fetishizing the sort of craft, right? Yeah. It's, it's like a um, textbook reification, you know, where mm-hmm. where like the craft becomes this sort of like beautiful like uh, embodiment of of personality and spirit and ethic and everything. Else, but the the actual labor it's uh, and the laborer is totally erased somehow. Yeah, um, and it's funny too because you see the projects that get built that they actually do really like, and there's no craft in them. You know, they're just like carved foam blocks that have been glued to a building. <laughs> because like you also like the reality is you can't build that way. Like I, there's, I the skills I, aren't there I, anymore. The, and, well, even based on the code, right? Yeah. Like you can't like you have to put continue in most climates you have to put continuous insulation around a building. Building. So you, you you can't build a building out of stone anymore. That's like solid solid stone. You can't have a solid brick wall. You can, like there's no there's no room for it. The way that we build architecture now, and there's a lot there's a lot to be critical of uh, from a leftist perspective on this as well. But um, you know you the buildings are all sort of surface, right? And 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 um, a, like appliques and things like this, which was one, not always the case. Even even you know not so long ago, even with the, the modernists, but obviously there's I don't know, I'm working on a left critique of this right now so it's all very salient for me but like we were talking about ashray I'm doing this project on ashray yeah ashray is like a frequent topic of conversation in this show probably the radio show that talks about ashray more than anyone <laughs> it's like really happy to hear that you also had a bone to pick with ashray accusations hate ashray like why should the HVAC people like get to, to decide like how buildings work buildings with sound they're like actually how about we force all this air into the space how about we just do that isn't that great yeah yeah. And it's just like that makes sound, and they're like, I'm like, why don't you have bigger ducks or yeah. like you know line the ducks or something? And they're just like, no. <laughs> How about we put a huge unit on top of it? Actually, you know, yeah, it's so annoying. Yeah, it drives me crazy. Anyway, I I don't I don't want to turn us away from the um the 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 arc revival people too early, because um, I think it's like a, it's a go- it's a gold mine of awful. It is. And like it's so funny, you mentioned McMansions, right? Uh, this kind of like it's not just like a, a simulacrum of, of a past that never was, because n- no past ever had like <laughs> phone, like a two story like entryway with like a glass transom window that just yeah. where the mutton like layout makes no sense ever, right? Right? Yeah. These these things like never really existed in the uh-huh. past. They're 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 you know 
uh, vernacular expressions of postmodern architecture. Right. Um, but the, which is, you know, of course you can talk about the simulacrum, like there, that's like all, sure. that's all Jameson, you know. But, uh, but it's also like the simulacrum of wealth that was yeah. never there. It was, it's, it's the, it's the picture for like an idea of wealth that never existed before. Yeah. It's, it's the picture of, of like a wealth that never existed. Like there's, they're like, you're building to, to, to simulate like, you know, this great, you know, wealth right it's like people it's like these are like the object identifiers of wealth yeah but the wealth was never there right well and i think a, a good a good concrete architectural example of that is sort of like uh the window the window grills right the the uh, the muttons and and you know they're literally just applied little pieces of wood that stick into the frame with pins. they're vinyl they're vinyl they're vi- yeah it's it's a uh, atrocious which is like there's no shadows or anything right and it goes back to this sort of like fetishization of craft right where it's the image image of um, not only traditional architecture, but also the labor that would go into setting many panes of glass into, you know, a leaden window frame. Mm -hmm. And like, but it's just not, it's like a $3 piece of like wood grill. And like, um, yes, the image of wealth. um, And, you know, there's a lot to be said about media theory generally here too, Mm -hmm. right? Because like, if we're honest with ourselves, it looks the, the pictures do look the same sometimes, right? Between these sort of like, um, not not the second we start to really deconstruct them, but like, if you don't have an image literate society, right? Where because images are sort of flowing all around us, like these things can sort of pass as like real architecture. I mean, except for some of the the, the more atrocious examples that you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it's also I think people confuse. The grandiosity of like dis- of conspicuous consumption from like actual architectural craft, right. and I think that the other thing is is that these 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 facades are less so like these um, you know cohesive architectural ideas. Sometimes they like try on styles like architectural styles from the past, like a Halloween costume. Uh-huh. But like the vast majority of them aren't really that aren't really themed. There's like you sure. know of course like you'll have like a, like chateau esque or like a like a Mediterranean like Spanish colonial kind right. of uh, you know pastiche. Uh, appearance up, like applied like a veneer like a style yeah. is applied like a ver- right. like a veneer it's actually like putting a mask on right um and modernism now too actually i wrote an article for curbed about that about like modernism and like these are mcmansions but they have like a modern exterior right it's like what you called uh what do you call it uh, sketch up modern sketch up sketch up contemporary sketch, even yeah. worse contemporary yeah. is the worst word on earth yeah sketch up um, <laughs> yeah so yeah and uh my my dear partner marianella dapriel and i are planning on writing an article i think we, we were talking about working on it together with you last night and, yeah uh, but yeah so sketch up contemporary feel free to use it but give us some credit yeah coined here <laughs> but uh what's yeah. so funny with uh you know and mcmansions so much of it is just ac- actual visual codifiers right. of wealth. like actually that's why you know you see on small houses these people like these kind of like these kind of visual um sort of IDs yes. to, of, of, of wealth, right? So, like, you'll see, like, just a modest two-story house, and they'll mm-hmm. still have, like, the transom window and the chandelier. Right. It's a total waste of space in, like, a more space-constrained situation. These houses are usually around, like, 2,000 square feet, really, right. at the most. Um, these They're, like, two just two-story houses, right? And But they have to have that, that signifier that you're, like, no longer, like, in the one-story house zone. Right. Right. Which is just so ridiculous. It right? is. Yeah. Um, it's absurd. Yeah. And, and really, you know, I think I think Baudrillard and the simulacrum really is the sort of running yeah, theme like you're suggesting. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, too. Um, 
how this feeds into, you know, your sort of like activist work or if it does at all. I think it's it's also perfectly fair to say, no, it's it's a different but related set of inquiries. Um, but, you know, you, you organize in, in Baltimore. Um, does this sort of figure into any sort of political discussions? Does it, ha- does it help with on-the-ground politics in any way? Well, I did have a fundraiser, which was like McMansion Hell Live, and mm. we did raise some money for DSA. But oh, that's sweet, that, yeah. That. But uh, other than that, like, does the does the McMansion Hell stuff play into my organizing life? Not really. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of like to do my organizing extremely offline. Yeah. Um, like, actually being on the ground and, like, doing things that are, you know, very, yeah. like, material in nature. Um and so in that case, I'm just like a like a person that's not doesn't have like a viral blog or whatever. Right. I'm just literally like along with everybody else trying to, you know, make things better in Baltimore, which is just a brutally repressive city. Yeah. Um, but as far as like, you know, the my political content informing my blog, I think that uh, to some extent, yes, of course, this is there is like a political edge to like critiquing rich people. Yeah. My favorite insult that people throw at me is that I'm like an elitist. Right. <laughs> and someone tried to, to like spin this that like I was a, I was like, sh- you know, just like dumping on the the upper middle class and like and like highlighting like the ultra wealthy and their actual mansion like no their houses are bad too like right you know there's this is a, it's a critic it's a criticism less so of like different like tiers of middle class wealth and more like of conspicuous consumption in general <laughs> but I think that you know also just dumping on rich people is just a good that's good that's good practice <laughs> I mean but I mean it's not that it's it's what's so the thing is is that like for in the entirety of like elitist studies of architectural history that I mean like architectural history that leaves out like folk and vernacular architecture hmm. um focusing only on like the sort of great man theory of architecture right. like this kind of like direct this like a lineage like there's no kind it's like a chronological yeah. lineage like yeah. this throughout this like you know of, of whether it's architectural styles whether it's like theoretical development all of these things follow this like fake lineage right that uh you know leaves out like half of almost the entirety of actual buildings right. on this earth so that's what I mean by elitist, not that everyone's rich who's doing it or anything like that. Sure. But uh, I think that uh, throughout like architectural history, um, in the documentation of architectural history, the wealthy have been the the determiners of taste, right? Right. They're the ones who hire the architects that that who use like their creative genius or whatever to push yeah. new forms forward and to create, you know, highly detailed and and highly sophisticated art. But at the same time, the um, What's so what's what's so interesting about this is that now that's not the case anymore. The wealthy are not pushing the you know the envelope of of most like architecture that people consider to be like the architecture of wealth. Yeah. That that we the the sort of architectural purity or the architectural sort of heritage that comes along with like you know elitist wealth that has like really been a kind of a patron of architecture more so than other arts. Like yeah has been lost the like the wealthy no longer contact architects they're no longer interested right. in like having the newest and greatest thing from like an artistic or aesthetic or developmental standpoint but only from like um like a consumerist material kind of standpoint of of having like the latest gadgets or having the house with the most square footage or something like that it becomes it's so extraordinarily commodified that the art has just been swallowed up in the commodification of real estate. It's yeah. been, it's it, what used to be even like all throughout like the, the, you know, the sixties and seventies, uh, what was ha- what happened, you know, after that, like, you know, modernism, et cetera, et cetera. Like they're all still architects still built houses and they still built like what houses for the wealthy. Mm-hmm. But then because of this sort of like very rapid hyper commodification of real estate and the sort of, um, 
identifiers of wealth being translated into like a monetary sort of currency status for the buying and selling and trading of houses, Mm -hmm. that these things got totally lost in the game of of like house flipping, in the game of, of buying and selling and the commodification of living like we were talking about and so like there's no room for art in that there really just isn't there's no room for art in the commodification of life that's the the that's it kind of reminds me of what uh i keep going back to jameson because i'm reading him right now but like what he says about like andy 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 warhol's (laughs) shoes painting right yeah where he says that like it's like it's like they look like dead things on on like you know hanging from the window like like meat from the slaughter it's and it's like you you know this like it leaves no impression right it leaves you with no kind of like emotional feeling or attachment not even confusing it's just art for consumption right uh, consumption in a very like um, you know political or economic way not so much as as in you know there's it's not even a criticism of consumption it's really just there for consumption and it makes a lot of sense because Andy Warhol used to produce copy for like shoe advertisements right. you know so yeah. like with that background it really kind of disrupts this um this sort of like examination of of the art itself uh which i just think is um what's what's that word it starts with an h like an analysis that it's like inferred meaning um oh i don't know oh my gosh i totally forgot the word i had it in my head and then i uh we can circle back it to does it. it doesn't matter <laughs> um but this it, it's it really just kind of like kills that kind of like yeah. inference that kind of you know inferred analysis or like interpretation of yeah. art uh yeah i think hermeneutic that's hermeneutic yeah. there you go all right yeah, I, I think you, you, the the thing you said a, a couple minutes ago about sort of like um, the the great man theory of architecture is really interesting. And if this show is about anything, it's about like you know that that good good pure uncut like materialist analysis of architecture. Um, and and it strikes me you know when you're talking about patronage in architecture and the way that kind of art was operationalized for it, you know the the that great man theory is is totally useful, and you see it now with you know the projects that still do have sort of wealthy patrons. You like know, civic projects. Yeah, right? civic projects. Concert they, halls, yeah. museums, uh, like libraries. Right. Monuments. Yeah. It's the only place where that sort of you know the the heroic architects you know still sort of walk around. Um, you know those 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 cats aren't building houses anymore. I think part of that is also just like the shift away from design media. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, dwell and like a couple of others like you know design milk these like sites and blogs and magazines. Yeah. They they sort of go back to they're starting to starting to bring that back from like a very like boring perspective like. Right. Um, and they always feature like they have their own aesthetic now, so it's not even really like a like an overview of like what architecture is. The closest thing we can get to that in media is like Art Daily, <laughs> if yeah. you want to just look at houses. But like back, you know, back in the day, like House Beautiful used to interview Frank Lloyd Wright, and they used to they used to up until like the seventies and eighties, they used to tour architects' houses. They used to yeah. talk to architects. Architectural Digest used to be that like talking to architects it used to be about architecture instead of like just the houses of wealthy people right but what really changed that is like first of all the like uh invention of the movie star yeah uh, the invention of like celebrity of celebrity culture in within newer media media that was coming out on television Uh and with cameras and all this stuff that was that became uh more you know more immediate more constantly pressing um 
and the focus no longer was really on like the the like the house is a craft, right? Yeah. But what's happening right now? The trends. Yeah. The who's who's living in what? Like what kind of designer furniture that they have? Really, what's so interesting is that House Beautiful and like Architectural Digest really could just be interior design digest like right. there's no longer a, like well, a, a discussion about f- the exterior my favorite thing is that they have architecture issues right <laughs> a lot of yeah me magazines. too actually <laughs> like wait i thought this was an architecture magazine why do they have an architecture issue that seems weird <laughs> it's, it's not the and, and i think that like you know the you know the internet is really even like completely chipped away at that even yeah. more um all we can hope for is just like that's all we do and it's just just flipping through art daily i mean yeah and that's just like the most boring way to consume architecture. It truly, truly, there's it nothing is. in depth about like it's about you know these kind of statements yeah. or anything like that. So you have to go to things like the biennial to see like what the actual like discourse is happening, right? Which is just or like read academic journals, which come out like what like once every summer or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the, it's completely it's become completely like the man in the high castle, right? You know, sure. Not the book, but like the the idea, right? Like the guy. Uh, <laughs> the, maybe the book. I don't know. It's hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> architecture gets pretty weird. I mean, yeah. but it's uh, yeah. Also, the Nazis are back. That's right. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but uh, it does become that like it's be- like architecture. Like the the discussion of architecture has become so isolated from everyday life despite the fact that buildings are built every day. Yeah. And that's the point of McMansion Hell is to like unite those kinds of things and to teach, empower like normal people like my mom who watches HGTV and loves all the houses, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. about, you know, architecture and how to use the terms and how to like take power from like they all, everyone's an architecture critic. They just don't right. have the words. And it's, right. the point is to give them the power to discuss design. Right, which is really beautiful. And I think, you know, as we, well, as a, a member and the national organizer of the Architecture Lobby, and we'll have more folks in the Architecture Lobby on our show Saturday, Saturday at 2 p.m. on Lumpen Radio here. Um, you know, part of the mission of the architecture lobby is to like reconceptualize architectural value because architects have sort of seen the writing on the wall, I think, actually. Even even a group that's sort of as inept as the AIA has 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 sort of understood that architecture is becoming commodified. And instead of challenging that in any re- real way, um, um, you know, they either sort of dig their heels and appeal tr- to a, a, a golden age that also never really existed, or, um, you know, they sort of uh, just try to ride the commodification wave and, you know, give in. And the architecture lobby is trying to do something different. We're trying to say, like, okay, look, architects, um, by and large, it's not always true, but by and large are pretty, like, socially conscientious people because you – most people go in architecture school because they want to put something positive into the world that will have an impact, right? And so and then you realize eventually that that's actually really hard to do with a building and, and you have to like actually do politics. But, you know, I think if we can reconceptualize what architectural value is, like what the value of architectural expertise is um, and, 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 um, it, it might help us sort of move away and, and, and reinstitute kind of, um, um, you know, like genuine culture that's separate from conspicuous consumption um, in, into um, any, any building, really. Um, but that's, that's a tall order. Yeah. And I don't really, I, there's no question in that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I think we were talking about HGTV um, and you had this really interesting point about um, renovations and sort of like land value. And, um, you know, we were talking a little bit with Karen, Karen Rowski earlier um, about the same issue. But uh, can you talk about HGTV and like, you know, <laughs> what, what it does and doesn't do for um, um, housing? 
HGTV is interesting because it's created this myth that if you remodel your house, it's worth more, like inherently right. worth more. That you see all those shows where um, it's like, oh, we tore out the carpet and added hardwood plus $5,000 to the value <laughs> of our house. And they see the value of our house, but they don't mean like the actual like concrete equity yeah. of the house itself. They mean like how much you can sell it for. That's right. You're not increasing the actual like worthiness or like equity of the house. You're just increasing how much you can sell it for right. on the market because like these things are driven by market forces and market trends, et cetera, et cetera. So you're sort of catering to that rather than actually, you know, increasing an, any kind of like objective, you know, wealth. Right. Uh, what's so interesting about, you know, about um, like actual like equity is that, you know, so like I, I was talking last night about my parents who redid their whole house. They mm. tore out all the carpet. They put in hardwoods, they put in granite countertops. They put, they did the bathrooms. They like, uh, you know, they had, they added like a little addition, you know, a deck. They had a hot tub. Yeah. They got the hot tub after I went to, after I went to college. Not cool. Um, <laughs> and then, so, but like th- when they went and they redid the roof yeah. and they went to reappraise their house after they did all this work, they spent all this money and the house didn't go the value of the house barely went up because what went up like the value of the house went up because they like made it more energy efficient which uh which is you know something and then they added an addition right it had nothing to do with like the the interior renovations that they do because the truth is is what determines how much a house is worth is mostly land yeah um the value if the value of the land goes up then the value of the property will go up right it has nothing to do with like how nice the inside of the house is the house could look like you know it it has to be structurally sound of course like the building does but the sort of the interior doesn't necessarily add what we consider to be like a concrete equity. That's judged by like square footage, land value, sometimes like energy efficiency because you can get like, you know, tax breaks or whatever for adding solar panels in some states, right. et cetera, et cetera, for like as, as far as. Um, but like when you're actually getting your house appraised, it's like, did you add to the square footage and how much is the land worth? Right. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. They really don't care if you have granite countertops, like because. Um, what happens is like what happens on either side of your house sure. or what's happening in the periphery. Right. So if someone builds like a huge house next to your house, that's going to like affect the property values. Right. What if someone builds like a condo next to your house, that's going to like, you know, impact the property value. Right. It, it, you don't have to do anything to your house. You know, you could renovate your house like entirely and make it perfect on the inside. But someone builds like something next to you uh, that's like less than desirable or whatever, your property values are going up, no, going down no matter what happens, sure. whatever, no matter what you do to right. that house. Yeah, and it's interesting because it implies that like no matter what, you have to think about these things um, systemically, even even as you might uh, portend towards like uh, to some kind of like iso- isolation, right? Mm-hmm. Like with, with the, the nature of the single family, you know, McMansion. Well, it's also like consume, 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 right? Mm-hmm. It's it's the, you're, you know, the remodeling, remodeling houses has become like so, People used to like never remodel their house, right. like except for like you know when you know maybe once in the yeah. like entirety of like the lifetime of like their yeah. house they would remodel. But now people remodel every five ten years, sure. because yeah. like it's become like you can't just have one thing for you have to constantly keep up with the trend. Yeah. You have to constantly consume, 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 consume. And it's what's so funny is like if you don't do these things, people are like oh blah dated. Yeah, and then it's and then because it's just so funny to me. Because all that is, is is just like a commodification of like your own aesthetics. You can't even live <laughs> with what you've done for 10 or 15 years before like being societally pressured by no one in your actual life, but just by this media that you have to somehow redo your entire house to have any kind of self-worth as a human being, right? Yeah. It's like you have bad taste if you don't have gray walls. Yeah. My mom just painted all of her walls gray. <laughs> like it's a nice gray though, actually. I'm kind of fond of it. It's it's like kind of a warm gray. It's not just like it's not like cold yeah. like uh, architectural digest gray. Sure, or whatever, you know? right, yeah, that yeah, 
um, we have like one minute left. Nice. This interview has flown by. Um, is there is there any like last minute things you want to like leave us with? I feel like there's some other things I wanted to get to that we didn't get to. So we'll definitely have to have you back on the show. Um, but yeah, a- any any final parting thoughts? Um, traditional architecture is not traditional values. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Um, also. <laughs> Uh, developers are not going to solve the housing crisis. Sorry, bye. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very good. Uh, that's been Kay Wagner, and it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Um, thanks so much for, for coming on and, and, and talking. Um, this has been Buildings on Air. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. We're going into the mailbag segment um, here on Lumpen Radio. Uh, I'm joined, as I am for every mailbag, uh, by Anne Louie, uh, the other half of Anne Louie, uh, <laughs> and future firm in the mailbag. Craig Reschke is um, downstate, so we'll have to do without. Um, but I think we can manage, uh, yeah, right? Yeah, he's here with us in spirit. That's right. <laughs> and, and judging my answers to everything remotely. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll get um, letters to uh, the editor from Craig specifically. <laughs> um, yeah. So w- without further ado, um, here are some some listener questions. Um, we've got some some good ones. I, and again, these are totally they, these are really not made up. I have to insist <laughs> on that every single time. I did not write these. <laughs> I, um, um, sometimes I find them in different places. Um, you know, they're they're not always solicited, but um, none of this is fiction. So. Um, Let's start with the what what I what I call the rubber strip conspiracy. Um, I found rubber strip in my doorframe? Question mark. I noticed that when I kept opening the door, it sounded sticky. I don't think much of it. Um, upon inspecting it, I noticed a rubber strip along the doorframe. Definitely was not there before. I do play music and talk loud on the phone. Is it a noise thing? Was I being too loud? I live in mid-rise apartments, so no need for weather strip. Oh, I think it's weather stripping. Yeah, I, I don't think that this person. Well, okay, hold on. There, there are two parts to this question. Like, one is what is the rubber strip that goes around your door, which I think is weather stripping, and will probably yeah. create a good seal to you know make sure this opening into your building is protected from from drafts and so on. Right. The second question is, did it emerge because I talked too loud, which is like a, some sort of magical question to think right. that your building might like change its form based on its <laughs> sense of your occupancy, right? <gasps> like <laughs> that I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah, that that's why this is the rubber strip conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think the implication is then because he was talking too loud, someone came in oh, the night it. and applied weather stripping around the door frame. Um, um, yeah, in, in a in a the most like constructive bit of passive aggression yeah. ever. It's like <laughs> passive aggressiveness as as adjudicated by somebody who has like a real nerdiness about doors. Though really, like if that were the case, I think the person should like insulate this loud talker's door right. rather than weather strip. Yeah. Like which will like I think help a yeah. little bit, but uh, like a you know, door filled with insulation might do right. a little more. Yeah, they have a thing. It's the STC rating of a door, yes. and yeah. you can l- look look those up when you are um, making and considering door purchases. 
Right. I guess my bigger concern is like, can you send this passive aggressive home repair person <laughs> in my direction <laughs> so right. that they can replace my windows and so on? Like, I don't know, because uh, like I annoy them. On the sly, totally without you knowing. <laughs> yeah, without me knowing, like do an excellent repair yeah. job in the middle yeah. of the night. I would love that. But I, I also suspect that it's probably not weather strip if it's like the entrance door to his apartment. I bet you that this was always there. Yeah. And it probably does have something to do with just noise noise control. Oh, you think so? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because mm, um, doors can get real real tricky. But I, I would suspect that he just never noticed it before. Yeah. Or that the, the super was just <laughs> applying them. I mean, certainly it wasn't because of him, right? Like, I, I, think, I feel like... Wait, maybe we should just feed the conspiracy, though. Like, maybe the answer to this question is like, yes, you are an annoying neighbor. You talk too loud. You listen to your music too loud. The architecture fairy will come for you and acoustically prove yes. your doors at night if you do not stop. Right, yeah. I, which I think, I think it's really nice, actually. It's very sweet, right? It's well, a, that someone would do this um, and not just leave a nasty note. Or the super would come and do it. Right. You know? It's a like progressive um, maintenance fairy, right. not a right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like this is what restorative <laughs> justice looks like, people. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is just what your door looks <laughs> like. Okay, <laughs> I feel we have answered that one. I think it's been sufficiently answered. I do think it's weather stripping, but okay. yeah, let's agree to disagree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so. This one is is maybe timely with everything that's happening um, with the weather on the Gulf Coast. Um, and someone very earnestly asks, um, you know, we have a lot of questions that are easy to sort of be like, okay, come on. Yeah. This one's pretty earnest. Okay. Um, why is it a bad idea to plug weep holes when water is rising around a brick home? Mm. Uh, why is it bad? Like, um, because they are concerned. They, they think that this will prevent water from entering into like the brick wall cavity and therefore like make the building more watertight. I think that's the implication, but um, that's not a great idea because water is going to get into the wall anyway. Right. Like I don't think the weep hole is the main porosity of the brick wall. Right. Brick is just a porous material. Like the water is going to come through the wall if it wants to, especially if, if, if it's raised around the home or, or in it. Um, and then when you plug the weep holes, I think the water's just going to, like, stick in the brick, in yeah. the cavity, and actually perhaps uh, exacerbate any mold problems or whatever you might be worried about. Yeah. I mean, that being said, I don't really know, and I, I don't have, like, expertise on, you know, proofing your house from, like, ecological change. I mean, but I guess I think maybe this speaks to a bigger, more serious question that I do think, like, architects and to have a responsibility to kind of speak strongly to issues of climate change and like recognize that buildings are kind of like on the front line of of hurricanes and like other natural disasters and that we have like of course a public responsibility towards like health and human safety but also like more broadly to to speak to the fact that like we live in a in a world that is kind of profoundly wrecked by human activity and that we need to kind of like uh, 
share share thoughts on that on, on a broad scale as well as on like the smaller scale of how how we deal with like weatherproofing for for right. brick walls. Yeah, I think that's yeah. really smart. As, you know, because especially there's this conversation about resiliency in construction right now, like to deal with this issue. Yeah. But like on on some level, it's like we we can make more resistant built like resilient buildings, yeah. and we can you know given enough money detail anything to be completely weatherproof. Um, but that's uh, usually prohibitive. Yeah. And so like you know it's 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 really something that you have to tackle from from both ends. You know you have to be a little bit smarter about how you build, but then we also have to be advocates f- to keep, you know, these sort of events from being as extreme as they're becoming, um, you know, through bigger legal um, activist fights. Right. Like, I think you're, there has to be systemic change. I and mean, when there has to be, like, a recon- on one hand, the kind of recognition that buildings contribute to issues of climate change through, like, our Western sense of the need for a hermetically sealed environment at all times. Like, I mean, and I think that's like one facet, but I think there are kind of like broader ways that we can think about the agency of architects and ecological conditions that we need to reckon with as well as, yeah, like from the other direction to kind of like make better buildings that are higher performing that like respond to changing conditions. Yeah, I think, yeah, I I totally agree. Um, Shall we move on to another question? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about the weep holes. I can't imagine that that helps make your brick wall more waterproof. No, I think, yeah, you want the you want the water to come out of the wall. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, okay, oh, this one, okay, this is also, again, another very earnest question, but it's funny, and I feel bad f- that it's funny. <laughs> um, Should we like, slash tr- it? Truly, I, yeah, <laughs> you'll get it. Um, I want to really help this person, but I also, yeah, Okay, let's just lean into the awkwardness that we're... <laughs> we should just I'm both so get, sorry. Yeah. We'll get that on a business card. Yeah. We lean into the awkwardness that yeah. in all parts of our lives. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, apologies in advance. <laughs> okay, is there any kind of sealant solution that could dry into cement that I could spray on the walls in a bedroom? Okay, so that question on its face doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but when we get into the description, it will come uh, into focus. <laughs> Update. We have a client who has lots of seizures, tinnitus, and is very diabetic and bangs his head into walls and breaks holes in all of our walls. We would like to get concrete cement brick walls in place so that he will no longer be able to put holes in the wall when he bangs his head into the wall. Sounds like my Friday. <laughs> <laughs> whatever whatever wallproofing. I also need to put this in my office, both at school and at future firm. Yeah. Um, this seems like not an architectural problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, there is spray on concrete. There are CMU walls. Like, my expertise in those things. Do not... Yeah, this seems like... A... Or it, this seems like a, a issue that is not being going to be resolved by architecture. And no. one of the things that we have to advocate for is knowing the limits of architecture to like resolve t- real problems yeah. of lived life. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I also think too, like if like we're talking about you know so like someone's health, like and you want to protect the wall, like you have to like 
think about those the things head. in tandem. Yeah, if you make yes. if you were somehow able to make this wall incredibly solid by spraying some sort by making it concrete or spraying some sort of <laughs> like hardener on the wall. Um, I'm worried about the person's head. Yes, like, yes. Forget the wall. Well, when I said like the trauma of lived experience, I didn't just mean like for this individual. I mean also for the person asking the question who's yeah. like sense of I don't know like yeah their priorities. Yes, and like how to resolve a problem seem like deeply flawed in a way that like you and I cannot resolve on the radio. Yes, I I mean I think you know you can put up um, as as we are in in. Um, the 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 studio K at Lumpen Radio here, you know, they're they're, they're moving blankets um, um, all around that help help deaden the sound. Um, or I don't know, I'm not the producer. I don't know what they do to the sound, but they make it sound good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jamie's nodding his head over here. Um, but like you know, like this is a kind of temporary solution that seems like it might protect your walls, but also like mitigate any potential head damage that this person might in- incur. Um, I also think you can just double up on drywall and it will, um, you know, be sufficient, but not as hard to prevent a hole, but like not hurt a person's head. I stand with that. This is uh, this is an issue not resolved by architecture. And like, yeah, like, is there I mean, yeah, I, I don't I don't have expertise, but I do have expertise in feeling like I want to bang my hand against, head against the wall. <laughs> so like in that, I would say like the solutions are, are usually like medical and therapeutic and yes. yeah, like bound up in one's human connections, not one's um, architectural knowledge. That's all I have to say. Yeah. I think, oh, Jamie's coming in. If the epileptic producer can yeah. a- add something, as ah, I do okay. have epilepsy ah. seizures, the person that is having the seizure should be actually having a helmet overnight to protect ah. his head. And instead of the walls being hard, you want them to be soft. They should be some kind of soft coating put on the walls. That would help prevent injury to the person having the seizures. But it's very common for, for children who have overnight epileptic seizures or people like myself to actually have a, a protective head covering. Mm. It's, like a, it's like a football helmet, basically. It can be made of a soft material or um, Teflon, actually. Gotcha. That was the most useful answer. You, Thank I, you. Whenever Jamie pops in on the back, it's, it's always a treasure trove of wisdom. <laughs> but yeah, and 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 um, no, knowing that, um, perhaps this is why this person is not so concerned about uh, uh, oh, the, the head, head because there's already protective uh, gear involved. In which case, you know. Uh. I think uh, throwing up a double layer of drywall, um, you know, might uh, be a, a, a little softer on the helmet, but mm. also enough to protect your wall. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I hope this gets resolved. Yeah, same. All right. We all learned something here today, uh, <laughs> as we do always on the mailbag. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. Jamie, What? how much How much time do we have left? Five minutes? Cool. So we've got time for one more question here. Okay. Um, Let's see. I've got a handful of questions. Which one to pick? Uh, Okay. How about this one? This may sound silly, but can I glue ceiling tiles onto over my existing drop ceiling? I have a very ugly drop ceiling in my older house. Also fears of asbestos in the tiles. Is there any way to cover it up somehow? I'm currently installing glue-up tiles over some popcorn ceiling. Would those work to be stuck to the drop ceiling? I was thinking about doing the 2x4 tiles glued right on the grid and existing tiles and then adding some trim to finish up. I have no need for ease of access that the drop ceiling provides, but maybe I'm just silly in this idea. Um, And then update 
another update was that in order to make it look nice, uh, this person would have to replace the whole grid, um, the the metal grid of the drop ceiling, um, which they don't want to do out of fear of asbestos. And also, I have some sympathy because if you've ever hung a drop ceiling, it is a pain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I say to my students, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) 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 Go crazy. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Uh, Yeah. It seems weird to have a drop ceiling and then glue tiles into a system meant to be hung, not adhered. Also, it seems like if one has asbestos, that is like a more a bigger problem that maybe should be like dealt with more holistically. If you have a landlord, they are required to deal with it. If you're a homeowner, you probably should deal with it. Yes. Um, But, like, there's nothing preventing them from doing the solution, I guess. It just seems like maybe not the best long-term solution. No. um, Yeah. I think this would also, if you have a warped and twisted ceiling grid, um, this will only make that problem worse as well. Yeah. It is not. (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Don't 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 do glue. This. Don't yeah. Don't glue. You, you yeah. <laughs> I think it's right to say you can. I mean, I don't know. Have, we've we've all like as architects gone into houses yeah. to like do a site visit when we're like yeah. thinking about renovations. <laughs> we've just seen something where you're like, oh my god. Like oh, I just need to yeah erase that from my memory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like an architectural horror. Yeah. 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 Right and yeah. This seems like it has the makings of one, but <laughs> many layers of ceiling glued onto it. Yeah, but also sometimes you walk into those spaces and you're like, "Well, I don't know how this works, but it's not as bad as I thought it would be." And there's a thing to be said for like the the palimpsest of history that occurs in spaces like yeah. that, right? Like we have the popcorn ceiling, we have the drop ceiling, we have the glued ceiling on top of the drop ceiling. Yeah. Some future tenant will paint that drop ceiling glued to a you know whatever. Like there's a beauty in that. This is why I'm so glad you're like <laughs> you're like one of one of our, our the prime mailbag correspondent. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> because like it is oh like the, like oh, it's 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 really nice to like have an optimistic uh, reading of of beauty <laughs> yes. into, in, into that. It's very poetic. It yes. is poetic. Any demo project you uncover layers of wall and I think in the, or ceiling or floor or whatever and there are like yeah. stories in those layers. Sometimes the stories are you should not have glued that tile to the drop ceiling tile, <laughs> but it's a valuable story nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's like you know these like buildings are, you know, they're not precious, you mm. know, I, or they can be, but like you know, especially when you're talking about like a home, mm. you know, it it it, it the, the the beauty in it is the the lived experience, not the sort of preciousness of the object. Mm. I think, like, even, like, the best modernism achieves that. Like, the Eames house is very sort of, like, lived in and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, We've got a couple more minutes. So how about um, one more question here? Um, Let's see here. Um, Can a front door be made so that it will actually shut itself, but not if someone's fingers are in the way? Oh, that's a good question. We should ask that door rep who came to our office the other (laughs) week and knew everything about doors. Oh, my gosh. Well, like, there is a closer. The closer will close the door. Yeah. Is there a way to know if there are fingers in the door jam? I don't know. What do you think? I'm sure that 
I shouldn't say the name of his company, but I'm sure that hinge rep would know. Yeah, I I bet you, given if you throw enough money at something, <laughs> something could be invented. Yeah. Um, you know, we could we we could certainly get some sensors involved there's with like a mechanic a, with a you know electronically actuated door closer. And there's like a there's like a kind of like slow door closer. You know, yeah. one that doesn't like slam it shut as right. you go out, but kind right. of like moves more slowly, yeah. which may right. be a good yeah. solution and if f- there are like children. Children's fingers that yeah. must be moved out of the way. And for those of you who are listening who don't know what a door closer is. Oh, yes. It's, it's a, that like silver, or sorry, silver. Yeah. It's that metal colored box on the back of a door, usually right. in a kind of like institutional area that lets the door close behind you without you closing it. Right, which is important for fire control reasons or yeah. security. Um, there's a lot of reasons why you might want to close her. Um, and now they, but like, yeah, the wide world of door hardware, you know, <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Um, <laughs> like, you know, there's like literally thousands of like pieces of door hardware and, you know, we have to like find these and sort them and figure out which one. But I'm sure that there's one that exists that is like, you know, the soft close, soft um, close yeah. uh, cabinets, um, which I think is, yes. yeah, yes. that, that would close your door, but then stop and gently close it. Oh, and maybe if you did like a closer, but you didn't have a latch. So yeah. actually it was like a magnetic close. Like, and yeah. I don't know in any situation yeah. where you would spec a door like that. But then when it closes, it doesn't like click close. So if your fingers are there, it's not like. It's not hurt. There's like less pressure on it. Right. I really don't know what situation you'd do that. Yeah, you'd have to really slam a finger too. (laughs) Right. Well, like a soft closer and then no latch. Yeah. This is the perfect. And no lever. All right. Well, if for 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 anyone who's out there worried about really really like paranoid about their finger safety, um, that's the door to. Or call us. We'll drive. (laughs) I'll I'll spec. I'll I'll do the door schedule for that. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, um, Anne, thanks so much for for joining us on the mailbag, and um, hopefully the next time Craig will be back, he can tell us if we said anything incorrect. But I think I think we did a good job. No, I think we did a good. All right. Thanks, y'all. This has been Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. See you next time. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at bldgsonair or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.